as we think about this this morning to consider that you and I must treasure Jesus. You and I must treasure Jesus. And and we'll hopefully lay for us uh, this morning that truth as we think about it and, and apply it to our lives. You and I must treasure Jesus, not the, not the treasure of this world, not the things this world has to offer, but you and I would treasure Jesus. Now, the four things, reasons I would point out to you this morning of why you and I should treasure Jesus, and, and they're going to be laid out this morning for us by way of Old Testament quotes. So here we're getting into, as we talked about in our introduction on Hebrews, where the author brings in the Old Testament to reinforce his point. And, and everything from verses 5 through 14 are a proof of verse 4. Look at back at verse 4. We, we talked about this last week. Having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And so from verses 5 through 14, he, he uses different Old Testament quotes to prove the supremacy of Jesus over angels. So within these quotes and within these sections of Scripture, I find four reasons to treasure Jesus. The first one is that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The author, by using this quote, points out that the angels do not have the same relationship to God as Jesus does. For to which of the angels did he ever say? The the idea is is a rhetorical question. The answer is no, he's never said that to any of the angels at any time and point of history past. He never said that to Gabriel or Michael, the archangels. They're just messengers of God. That's their role, that's that's their service to him. They're not his son. And the phrase here, for to which of the angels did he ever say, also introduces these Old Testament quotes. So the author is going to go back to the Old Testament and delve into certain passages to prove his point that Jesus is supreme over the angels. Notice also that Jesus declares, or God declares that Jesus is his son. Now here we get into the quotes. The first one we read this morning a little bit from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as Bob was reading Psalm 2, the context of that psalm is the sovereignty of God over the nations of the earth. That God is king. He is in control. And the verse itself, uh, in chapter 2, verse 7 of Psalms, deals with the Davidic covenant. So what is referred to in that psalm is the sonship of the king in relationship to the sonship of God. So the sonship in Psalm 2 is talking about the king. He is a son of God, not by direct in, uh, relationship genealogically, but he is a son of king that he has been endowed with rule, authority over the nation, and therefore he is God's son. And the author of Hebrews takes that reference and now applies it to Christ. So the the king is a son of God by virtue of his authority as king over God's people. But to a greater degree, Jesus is the son of God. He is the ultimate son of God who has a relationship with him by genealogy and inheritance. 
parentage. So God declares that Jesus is his son by virtue of his parentage. Father, son. That is, weighs heavy outside of the God-King relationship. So he uses that phrase to show that no angel has ever, made that, has ever had that proclamation made about him. You can search in the Old Testament. You can look different portions where angels are interacting with human beings and you do not see that designation. So the author says Christ is supreme over the angels because He is the Son of God. He is greater than the angels. No angel has that designation applied to Him. He is a messenger, not a son. And again, the end of verse 5, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Here, here we have a quote from 2 Samuel 7.14. And the idea here is that of this is to show that the father and the son have the perfect relationship. And so the back, if you go back to 2 Samuel 7.14, the covenant between David and God is that uh, David will have a son who will be king. And he, God will be a, a father to him. And the following verses describe the relationship that they will have. But now he takes that relationship between God and, and what will be Solomon one day, the author does, and applies it to Jesus to now show that he will be, he is the Son of God. It's interesting to note here the term son. It's a play on words here a little bit is what the author is doing. If you know your grammar, uh, English play on words means one word is used to another meaning. So one word means one thing, but then an author uses it to mean something else. Angels are referred to as sons in the Old Testament. If you look in the book of Job, Job chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 38, verse 7, angels are referred to as sons of God, designated there as their relationship uh, is, is unique, even that God created the angels. So in that respect, there is that relationship there. But yet the sonship of Christ is greater. Why? Because they share the same parentage. The Father and the Son share that unique relationship and is greater than the angels. So what the author is doing here is he's laying out from a, a very familiar portion of Scripture in Jewish history to show that the Father and the Son ultimately feel, fulfill the perfect relationship. Solomon and David did not. We know this. From, Solomon and David were sinners. They failed miserably. Even to the point that, that Solomon, as we think of him as a very wise king who has an ultimate wisdom, if you look at his life, ultimately he failed. He took too much after his dad in certain areas. So they did not ultimately fulfill that promise, but Christ fulfills it perfectly as the Son of God. So by way of application, thinking about this morning, maybe you're confused already, Pastor, what are you talking about? Let me just ask you this this morning. Is your view of Jesus guided by Scripture? You know, there are many, many Religious systems, academic systems, gurus today who have different viewpoints of Jesus. Islam refers to Jesus as a prophet, a good prophet, an important prophet. Buddhism and, and uh, Shintoism 
draw a little bit from Jesus as, as an influencer, as a teacher. Others just view him as just a good man who had some good things to say. But I would ask you this morning, is your view of Christ from Scripture or from culture? You know, the author of Hebrews points out that Jesus is the Son of God and he uses Scripture to prove it. He doesn't use a popular theory. He doesn't cite another author outside of Scripture. He cites Scripture itself. And our view of who Jesus is must be guided by Scripture. We cannot ignore it. We cannot rely on another source to influence our view of Jesus. So I would ask you this morning, is your view of Jesus guided by Scripture? Second reason that I would give you to treasure Jesus is that Jesus is worthy of worship. Look at verse 6 and 7. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let the angels of God worship him. And then of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Worship of Jesus comes from his position. He talks about the firstborn into the world. Now, there are commentators who go back and forth. What does that mean, bringing the firstborn into the world? Does that mean his first coming into the world as a baby in Bethlehem, or does it mean his second coming? I don't think that's the emphasis. The emphasis is on him being the firstborn, the, 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 the firstborn by way of position of all creation. So Christ is first above all creation. He is first. He is supreme. Paul uses that term in Colossians chapter 1, verse 5, talking about Christ being the firstborn of all creation. He is, he is positionally the first and therefore is worthy of worship. So much so that the angels are to worship Him. To the angels... Uh, he, says, he says, let all the angels of God worship Him. This is a quote from Deuteronomy 32.43. Now, here's where it gets a little sticky. Uh, the Old Testament Hebrew and the, the, what we call the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, differ on the translation of this verse. Okay? In the Hebrew, it reads, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. In the Greek, it reads, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, let all gods bow down to him. Okay? So there's a different translation. So what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's going with the Greek translation of the Old Testament as his interpretation. And so he's interpreting that word gods, let all the gods worship him, let gods worship him as referring to angels. So the quote is designed to show that worship is given to the firstborn who is a son, and those who are worshiping are the angels. So he's using Deuteronomy 32.43 to prove that point. The gods, the angels, are to worship him. Why? Because he's preeminent. He's first. He is supreme. The angels function differently. Verse 7. Now, now he's addressing, and you'll see this, we'll go back and forth. It'll say to the Son, and then it'll say to the angels. So we see these two different groups addressed. And of the angels, he says, who makes his spirits, his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Here we have a different uh, translation that just shows the angels function in different capacities. This one here is service. Psalm 104.4. 4. 
Again, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says, who makes his angel spirits his ministers a flame of fire. It's a very accurate translation here that the author uses. In Psalm 104, the context there describes the greatness of God, and it urges the readers to praise and bless his name. It describes who God is and what he's done, and that's where this reference in Psalm 104.4 comes. God created the angels to serve, not to receive worship. Their service is to God, ultimately pointing people to him. We see this described for us in, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, as, as the Apostle John has seen all these wonderful things that are coming about the great tribulation and the end of time and, and God's plan coming together. He's been talking with an angel, and the angel has been showing him, him these things. We get to Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, and it says, I fell at his feet to worship him, that is the angel. But he said to me, See that you do, do not do that. I am your fellow servant of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The angels said, no, John, do not worship me. You worship God. So even the angels recognize their position as servants and not those who receive worship because God has created them differently. They are His ministers. They are His servants. They are, they're the flaming, a flame of fire, those who have his mission in mind. Now, some of you might say, Pastor, we don't worship angels. I get that. That's not, I would dare say, not a, a struggle for many of us this morning. But I would still ask you the question do you worship Jesus? Do you worship Jesus? And again, you might say, Well, Pastor, of course I do. Why am I, what, that's why I'm here. But this is still a fundamental question to ask. Because in our lives, we worship many things, don't we? We can worship sports. We can worship family. Put them in a priority above us. We can, we can worship our work. We can worship our, our hobbies, our trades, whatever it might be. And we can spend time with those things and, and focus on those things. But I ask you this morning, do you worship Jesus? Do you put him, you consider him as worthy of worship, and do you put him in that priority? Or do you just kind of use him as a side gig? As just someone who, you know, I'll, I'll talk to once in a while, I'll come and worship him on Sunday, but the rest of the week is my time. The author of Hebrews points out how vital it is to worship Christ. Why? Because he is supreme, and the angels serve him. Do you worship Jesus this morning? Do you, do, you, do you come to church? Do you come to your Bible reading during the week? Do you come to prayer? Valuing Him and bringing your praise and glory to Him. And that's the question I ask myself. As I prepare sermons, as I just walk, the, the Christian walk, do I worship Jesus? Or am I worshiping this church? Am I worshiping so on and so forth? The author of Hebrews clearly points out that Jesus is worthy of worship. Third reason that I would give to you this morning why we must treasure Jesus is that He is eternal. Verse 8, But to the Son He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of Your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Was, was the meaning here. I think he, He's talking about that His reign is forever 
and guided by righteousness. Now here that, that you notice the phrase to the sun switches topics. Now he's gone from the angels back to the sun. And the quote is from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. And a lot of commentators uh, state that the historical setting cannot be really pinpointed with precision what's going on in Psalm 45. But there is general agreement, and the general agreement is that it's a royal psalm commemorating the wedding of a king in the Davidic line. Okay, so it's, it's commemorating the wedding of a king. It's pointing out to the relationship between the king and God. The author interprets it as a relationship between, uh, as the eternality of Jesus. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness. The righteousness here refers to right living according to God's standard. Jesus' kingship, his reign, will be characterized by the standard of righteousness. This, again, does not apply to angels who do not reign. You know, angels are messengers. They don't reign. They don't, they're not in control. Yet Jesus is, and his, his scepter, his, his standard for righteousness in his kingdom is always present. His reign is forever perfect, secondly, and exalted. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. That's, that's, that's his perspective. That's his, how he governs. He loves what is right, hates what is evil. He cannot abide anything lower than that standard. In that phrase, therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions, refers to exaltation. He is exalted above all things because of who he is and what he does. Think about that. Christ is exalted because of who he is and what he does. This is not like the angels. They aren't exalted. They do not have this position of authority. They do not, they're not supreme in this way. So, so what the author is doing is showing, hey, he reigns forever and ever. He's exalted. The angels are not. So worship him. He is eternal. Then verses 10-12, through 12, he points out that he remains the same amid decay. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years do not fail. Here another quote is from Psalm 102, verses 25-27. through 27. And in the context of that psalm is that the psalmist is pleading with God for deliverance amidst his difficulty. He's coming to God with a plea. and In the midst of the plea, he acknowledged who God is. He emphatically admits his own fragility and God's unchanging character. And now the author of Hebrews takes that to refer to Christ. Christ was there at the beginning. We talked about that last week. You, Lord, laid the, and began, laid the foundations of the earth. He was there when it started. He created everything and saw how new and fresh it was. And you will be there at the end. They will perish, but you remain. Jesus exists while the physical universe continues to, to die. And so he, so the, the author uses the example that the psalmist uses. He talks about a, a piece of cloth or a cloak. that you know It comes new from the manufacturer today, right? 
But what eventually happens to that piece of clothing that you obtain? Eventually it wears out. Eventually it gets holes in it, right? Eventually because of the folding and washing and drying and everything, it just, the material wears out. But Jesus doesn't. Christ does not. Notice the end of verse 12, but you are the same and your years will not fail. He never wears out and he never comes to an end. He is in control even over things that decay. And the author of Hebrews will will get to this later on. But he writes that verse, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Regardless of time, Jesus remains the same. So I would ask you this morning, are you thankful for an eternal, consistent Savior? That, that in eternity past, he was, he, he was there. He was there at the beginning of creation. He created the worlds with his hands. He created everything we know. And he will be there when it all ends. Isn't that a comfort to us? <laughs> in, in, in uncertain, changing times, when we don't know what is going to happen, we don't know what event is going to happen next, and it seems like everything in the world is collapsing around us and everyone is acting like it's collapsing? Are, are we thankful that Jesus remains the same? That He does not fail? He does not change? He's not surprised what goes on in your life? We've had, we've had events recently in our church that have just shocked people. Jesus isn't surprised by that. He knows those things. And he still remains the same. And if you get nothing out of the sermon this morning, may that be a challenge for you and I to be thankful that Jesus is the same. Regardless of what we face in the passing of time. And then lastly, one final reason to challenge or to treasure Jesus. He is sovereign. Verses 13 and 14, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who inherit salvation? The author uses uh, the quote from Psalm 110 to show that Jesus is the victorious king. Again, he uses that phrase, but to which of the angels has he ever said? The idea that he's never said it. None of the angels have have victory in this way or the authority to have victory. Jesus is addressed differently than the angels. A quote from Psalm 10, verse 1. The context there is that Jesus is addressing the human king. He's talking to the human king of his people. The victory that he will have. And now the the, the author refers, takes it out of, uh, takes it from his context and applies it to Christ. And quite frankly, Psalm 110 is consistently referred to Jesus. He himself uses it in Matthew 22, 42 through 45 to refer to himself when he's talking about with the religious leaders and they're discussing, uh, challenging him on on certain things that last week of Jesus' life. We're talking about, you know, Jesus has heard many questions from them, and now he asks them a question. He says, What do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? 
They said to him, the Pharisees, the son of David. And he said to them, how then does David in spirit call him Lord, saying, Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word from that day forward. Did anyone dare ask him any more questions? So Jesus applies that verse to himself. So does the author of Hebrews. And there is this future aspect to this. Quote, Though Jesus has ascended to the Father and is now at His right hand, we, we looked at in Ephes- that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. It's also found in 1 Peter 3.22. His victory is not yet complete, as there is a coming a day when all enemies will be put under His feet. God never said that to any of the angels. He has only said it to His Son. Why, is, why, why are not the angels in that conversation? Because the angels are only servants. Verse 14 is, or excuse me, verse, yeah, verse 14 is a summary statement of all these previous verses. So it's, he's, the author has made his argument that Christ is supreme over the angels, and he kind of sums it up here. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who inherit salvation? The word ministering here means to serve, to be in service of. The term all means referring to, to all the angels, not, not just one or two, but all the angels. And was their purpose sent forth to minister, to serve for those who will inherit salvation? That phrase, who will, refers to a certain point in future time and refers to all believers, for inheriting salvation is for those who believe in Christ. So, what does the author do by using this statement? He says that angels are des- designed to serve us as we travel towards future redemption. That's their, that's their goal. That's their purpose. That's why they, they exist. They exist to serve God, and by virtue of that, they serve us, helping us on the path of salvation, towards salvation, eternal salvation. That doesn't mean they help us get saved. That doesn't mean they in, are in part of the process of salvation. They are, des- they are helping us as we look forward to the day of eternal redemption. And Jesus is superior because of the salvation He's secured for us. He is the Savior, not the angels. He saves, not the angels. They're only servants. But Jesus is King. And so I would ask you, by way of of application this morning, are you yielding to the sovereignty of Jesus? He is King. The angels aren't. You know, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a poem that was written back in the late 1800s. People love to quote it. It's called Invictus. There's a phrase in that poem. It says, I am the captain of my soul. Unquote. And people love to use that phrase. I'm in charge. I'm the one who controls my destiny. But when we look at Scripture, no, you don't. Jesus does. And are you in your words and actions and thoughts yielding to His authority, yielding to His sovereignty, or are you putting yourself in that position? You see, every thought, action, word, and deed that we do, whether it is inward or outward, must be governed by His sovereignty. He is King. He's in control. He is the one who will one day have victory over all enemies. And are we living underneath that authority, or are we acting as rebels 
getting out from his sovereignty. Maybe in, in your work, in your relationships, you're, you're, you're trying to figure it out on your own. You're trying to take control and figure things out when all you need to do is submit to his, his rule and his authority. He is king. You're not. In my own life, in my relationships with my wife and my boys, I need to put myself underneath his authority and let him direct my steps and not myself. In your health, many of you are struggling this morning with health issues. You're trying to figure things out. You're trying to take control of your health. And, and while that, that's not a bad thing, ultimately may I challenge you to put that underneath his authority. Let him take control. You submit to his rule. There's no doubt the treasure is exciting to find. It's exciting to, to touch and to hold. Yet I hope we've seen this morning that the most important treasure is not the rich materials we may find in our backyard. It is Jesus Christ himself. I've given you four reasons this morning. Let me go over them again. He is the Son of God. He is the divine Son of God who gave himself for us. The one who came to earth. He is worthy of worship. God continually tells us in His Word to worship His Son. Jesus is eternal. He was there at the beginning. He, he will be there at the end. And He will continue to last beyond that. He remains the same. And then Jesus is sovereign. He's king. He's in control. So may I challenge you this week, and until we see Him, let us treasure Jesus, for His worth is beyond comparison.